We join me in reading God's good word. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I will tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We've been having this wonderful and incredible week of camp. And now we shift into Vacation Bible School. I have to be honest and say I've never been in a church before where we had this many hours with young people. And it's really special. It's exciting. It was special to move out of the cabins and come back to air conditioning and, <laughs> and plenty of showers. That was a good part. So I love the last part, and I'm really looking forward to the next part. That's really all I need to say. I don't know if I need to say anything after I say that. <laughs> Right? It was 1964. It was the year of the great hot dog incident. The one that prophets had foretold. The one that historians will write about until the very end of days. It was an apocalyptic event. And I'm embarrassed to say it all started at the Gorel House. (laughs) Now, if you know anything, there is a certain way that you prepare hot dogs, right? On the grill right? Maybe steamed at a ball game, but never boiled. Never. And with mustard, maybe a little ketchup, but never mayonnaise, right? I mean, that's like an abomination of some kind. Now, normally, my mom was a great cook. I mean, a fabulous cook. There are people, preachers all over the state of Oklahoma that, that she's cooked for for big events, and they, they'll all tell you she's a great cook. She, she made her own pasta. She ground her own sausage. She was that kind of a, of a cook, scratch cook. Youngest kid, 13 siblings. She was the youngest in a farm family from Okarchi. But on this particular day, she was a, a mom and a college student and working a part-time job, and trying to get it all in, and at the same time, taking care of her in-laws. My, my paternal grandparents lived in our house. And my grandma, my dad's mom, was an English lady from Liverpool. And my mom was a farm girl from Okarchi. And they didn't always see everything eye to eye. And we all lived together in a 700-square-foot house. So it was always interesting, right? And on this day, there was no home-cooked food or anything, my mom boiled some hot dogs, dropped them in buns, and put them in front of us in a rush to get everything done. I think she was studying for a test that day. And I looked down and saw a hot dog that had been boiled and was covered in, still makes me queasy, mayonnaise. 
So I did what any normal, healthy, religious person would do. I took my seven-year-old fist and I smashed it. And then there was silence in the room. Even my grandma, who always had comment about everything, was silent. And I looked at my mom and she said, what have you done? Now the next few moments are kind of a blur to me, (laughs) to be honest. I, I, I kind of partially remembered. I think I know what happened, but I'm not really sure. I know that somewhere in the, in the midst of those moments, I might have picked that hot dog up and thrown it. I'll go to my grave swearing to you all, I did not throw it at my mother. But it just happened to be the direction I was looking. She had just asked me a question, and I was looking at her, and when I took the hot dog and threw it, well, it kind of just missed her by about that much. I never saw my mother in her entire lifetime lose her temper. Never. Never saw her do that. So she was holding it in. And then she spoke God's word. Sort of like the prophet Nathan when he passed judgment on David after the David and Bathsheba event. She looked me square in the eye and she said, wait till your dad gets home. Right? My dad was a real sweet, kind guy. He, he didn't really raise his voice either. Just a nice guy. But he was firm. And I knew that judgment was coming and justice would be dealt out. I knew that was going to happen. Now, back in those days, we didn't have video games. Some people think we didn't even have TV, but we did. Three channels, maybe four if you got PBS, Right? So in my neighborhood, I just spent the week, week with a bunch of mid-high boys in, in a cabin together with them, and Pastor Brandon and Mark, we were, all, we, were all, we were all there, and they were all so plugged in. But back in my day, we didn't have any of that stuff. So the epitome of a kid thing back then, at least in my neighborhood, was a go-kart. And my family wasn't very wealthy, so we couldn't just go out and buy a go-kart. What my dad did is he went from garage sale to garage sale buying go-kart parts. And then finally he was able to build a red go-kart. Not this one, but one very similar to this. Ours wasn't quite that nice, but but similar to that. And I loved that go-kart. My whole life revolved around that go-kart. Cleaning it, polishing, making sure the tires were aired up, and of course riding in it. And that night my dad came home and heard what had happened and told me, I would not be able to ride the go-kart, not even touch it for two weeks. It was the most crushing feeling. I wasn't even feeling bad for what happened to my mom. I wasn't feeling bad about breaking one of the cardinal rules in our house, wasting food. I was feeling bad and sorry for myself. And I remember going to bed that night, and for the first time in my young life, thinking, my parents don't love me, right? Because they won't let me have what I want. You know, so obviously they don't love me. And that's the feeling I went, with, went to bed with that night. Now, this is a little bit earlier. This is before the, the hot dog incident, but that's my dad and me. I just wanted you to see there is a strong family resemblance, and we obviously go together. And my dad had this game. He always played with me, and it was called the shadow, it was called a shadow hug. And the next week was vacation Bible school. Normally we would play that game, but I didn't think he would. 
You see, my dad took two weeks off a year from working on a freight dock, loading freight. One week, he went to Chigger Ridge at Lake Tenkiller, and we stayed in a cabin with no electricity and an outhouse. And he fished from five in the morning till you dropped at night, maybe 10.30 or so, you know? We even ate in the boat. You know, we, there, was no, there was no breaks or anything. We fished like crazy. The second week, my dad helped at Vacation Bible School. He invested himself in his son's life that way. It was one of the ways he did it, and in his church. And so we were going to Vacation Bible School the next week, and I had this sense of loss about the go-kart, but what I felt worse about was maybe my dad didn't love me anymore. At Vacation Bible School... We always had this game. We played it all the time, but he liked to play it when he was there helping with vacation Bible school. It was called the shadow hug. And what he would do is he would try to sneak up behind me. And then suddenly I would notice I was in his shadow. And he would stretch out his arms. And I could see his arms stretched out in the shadow. And I would turn around, I'd run and throw my arms around him, and he would hug me. But I didn't think that was going to happen at vacation Bible school this year because I was in so much trouble because of the great hot dog incident. <laughs> and about the second hour of vacation Bible school, my dad always helped with the games. We were out playing a game, and I was just kind of standing around. I didn't want to play. And suddenly I noticed. I was in that shadow. I remember the feeling of absolute love and forgiveness in that moment. That shadow of those stretched out arms. And turning around and being wrapped in my dad's arms, and feeling so totally and completely loved. Now that's what we've been trying to help children and youth in our church understand. This week at camp, next week at vacation Bible school. That no matter what happens, God loves you totally and completely, and there's nothing you can do that will ever change that. We have been learning to... Do what Jesus says, believe who Jesus is, love who Jesus loves, share what Jesus did, and go where Jesus leads. Would you say that with me this morning? Let's say that together. Do what Jesus says, believe who Jesus is, love who Jesus loves, share what Jesus did, go where Jesus leads. That's basically the summary of the curriculum we're using for camp and vacation Bible school. And there's no more important lesson than that in the world. I mean, that sums up the Bible. You can think of that sort of as an Apostles' Creed for young people. It really tells us who we are and what we're supposed to be doing as disciples. And because of this wonderful accident of having camp and VBS just bump up against each other, we're having an intense time of our children and youth learning those lessons. Our job, we've learned, you heard Megan talk about it in the children's time, is ready, set, move. That's the theme of VBS and of the curriculum. And it's this sense of, of going out where Jesus goes and doing the work of Jesus in the world. We want to follow Jesus here, there, and everywhere. It seems like a simple thing, but it's incredibly important. I was with a group of retired pastors this weekend, and they were teasing me about going. I said, what are you doing, fool? At your age, going and doing camp and things like that? A couple of them said, you know, you had heart surgery twice in May. What are you doing there? And I had to really think about it. And I knew the answer in my heart, and the, heart is, and, and the answer is simply, I believe in the mission. 
I believe in the mission. I believe that we are called to do ministry with, for, and to help our children and youth grow in their faith. And when you believe in the mission, then, then God will lead you where you should go. It might be camp, it might be as a volunteer at VBS, it, it might be as, a, as a, a sponsor in youth, or as a teacher or helper in Sunday school, or, or any of those ministries that are in our church that help children and youth. And it's really important because of something that's happening. For the first time in American history, we are raising children in a country where Christians are a minority. Now, I'm not making any kind of a political statement about that at all. It's just, I have a statistics degree. It's just a result of the statistics. It's just what they show. It's a completely different culture than any of us have ever grown up in. No generations of Americans have ever had this experience, the experience that our youth and children are going to have. It's a completely different kind of world than particularly people my age grew up in, but even people that are in their 30s and 40s, it's totally different. Think about that for a minute. Think about the implications of that. There's no reinforcement in our culture or society for being Christian. The place that children are going to learn to be followers of Christ is in the home and in the church. I want to say that again. Children are going to learn to be Christian in the home and in the church. Now, don't be scared about that. We've done that before. That's the way we did it in the beginning. And it worked pretty well. And when we work together and we unite the home and we unite the church in doing ministry to children and youth and young people, the results are powerful. Children and youth ministries are more important now than at any previous time in American history. That's my opinion, of course. But I think it's really true. We have got to be serious and committed to raising up the next generation of Christians. And if our experience at camp is, is any show of that, they're ready to go. It was so impressive to hear our youth give their testimonies, and you'll hear one in a little bit, and, and to just hear the children's responses. One day I was teaching a class with the mid-highs. Pastor Brandon and I were in there, and we were talking about Peter. And a couple of the kids just knew the whole story of Peter because you all have been doing your job. They've learned it at home. They've learned it in Sunday school. They've learned it in VBS. It's amazing to hear you know, a 13-year-old just go through the Bible and tell you all about one of the most important people in the faith. But that's what happened. Well, I want to take you back to one of those lessons we had this week and the scripture we read today and just walk through a part of what the children or what the youth learned. This is Caesarea Philippi. We'll go there next year when our group goes uh, from Acts 2 to Israel. It's a really amazing place. It's really quite incredible. It's named after Philip, the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great gave this area to his son. It was a very historical area. It had been first ruled by people who followed the god Baal, Baal, we say in English. It's at the foot of Mount Huron, which is one of the highest mountains in the region. It's called the Snow-Capped Giant. And it's a very special place because the ancient limestone there from the Jurassic period absorbs the snow. The snow is filtered through the limestone, and these great springs come out, 
and form these beautiful little rivers that eventually flow together to become the Jordan. Now, people have been worshiping there since prehistoric times. In fact, that cave you see uh, was called the, the Gates of Hades, or Hell, and it was believed in early times, that's where Baal, the ancient god, came out of the gates of hell, up from the underworld, released all the scary things from the underworld to prey upon human beings. Later, the Greeks conquered the area, and they put up little niches in the rock where they would put up all their idols, and particularly to the god Pan. And so it was called Panis, or Banis if you look on a modern map, because there's no P in Arabic, so it would be Banis if you look it up on the map. But Panis, for the god Pan. And then later, the Romans put up idols there in those niches of their gods. In fact, when the Jews rebelled against the Romans, and the Romans eventually, after three years, put down that rebellion, they brought the the Jewish leaders right here and threw them off the cliffs in front of those idols to show the Jews that the Roman gods were more powerful than the god of the Jews. So Jesus, one day, gathers up his disciples to bring them, that's an image of what it might have looked like in that time, to this place. And you think about it, it's really kind of a strange idea. They leave Galilee where he's doing his ministry, and he's very, very successful. And they leave Galilee, and they they make the 25-mile climb into the mountains to the headwaters of the Jordan River to Caesarea Philippi. And it's sort of like a scene you might see in the Middle East today. There are all these different people of different cultures coming to worship in the temples, coming to worship the idols. They represented many different religions. They were culturally different. They were speaking different languages. The Roman soldiers would have been everywhere. Members of the Roman 10th Legion were were stationed there, about 5,600 of them, in order to maintain peace because from time to time, you've probably never heard of this, people got in religious conflicts right? And they would start to riot. So the Roman soldiers had to be there. And if you think about 5,600, that's a large army in the ancient world. That's what it took to keep peace there. And Jesus brings his disciples to this place to ask them this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's referring to himself. 88 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. Most of those times, he refers to himself that way. Only one other character ever calls him that in the New Testament, And that is Stephen as he's being stoned to death for his belief in Jesus. The Son of Man is a really important title. It comes out of the old book of Daniel. Set many centuries before, when Daniel had prophesied, the Son of Man would come and draw all nations to himself and the people of all languages, and he would judge them. So it's a powerful name. It means in Hebrew, actually, Ben-Adam, which really you can translate, I love this for Okies, you can translate as son of the red dirt. That's a literal translation. But in the colloquial way that the Jews use that, admit you were a human being. You were a human being. And I love that Jesus over and over in Scripture refers to himself as a human being. He wants us to know that he's here with us. He's making the journey with us. He's feeling our pain. He's feeling our hurt. He's feeling all the challenges we feel of being out at Lake Texoma when it's 104 and the humidity is 75%. He knows all of that stuff, right? 
And he says to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In Jewish culture and in my grandmother's culture, your identity is everything. Your identity grounds you in your past and opens the door to your future. And I want you to think about that a little bit. I'm going to leave it up there a minute. As we consider children and youth ministry. Because what we're trying to shape is their identity. And these folks right over here, they're ready to lead right now. They've got that identity. They understand what it means to be Christian. So not only are we trying to shape them, but we need to open our hearts to what they have to say and to their leadership. Because they will point us to Jesus just as much. Well, the disciples answered, and they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The great Roman historian Josephus, who was a conquered Jew, tells us that those were the four predominant beliefs in the time of Jesus. And that there were actually people all around the country who had come forth and were saying, hey, I'm Elijah brought back from the dead. I'm Jeremiah brought back from the dead. I'm one of the prophets brought back from the dead. Or I'm John the Baptist. A lot of people were claiming that. And so the disciples just give the pat answer. Well, here's, you know, here's what I think it might be. And then Jesus does this really important thing. He says, but who do you say that I am? Right? Who do you say that I am? Not other people. Not, not what you learned in Sunday school. Not what you read in a book. Not what you saw on a video or on YouTube. Who do you say? You see, Jesus' question, but who do you say that I am, is the most important question most of us will ever answer in our lifetime. I think it's the most important question. Who do we believe that Jesus is? Who who is he to us? How does that belief shape our life? And if you believe that too, if you believe that's maybe the most important question or at least one of the most important questions we can never answer in our life, then I have a question for you. Who's going to teach our children the answer to that question if we don't? How are our children going to know how to respond to that? How are our children going to know who Jesus is if we don't step up and teach them and share with them? There are young people over here in their camp t-shirts today that can answer that question. But how many other young people need our help, need our encouragement and our affirmation and our love to be able to answer that question? Well, if you know anything about the New Testament, particularly the Gospel of Matthew, which is the gospel of people, about people on the fringe, this guy jumps up, as he often does. His name is Peter, Simon Peter, he's called here. And he answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, that's really important language. Because the Jews had been expecting the Messiah, the anointed one. All of their prophets had told him there was one coming, descended from the lineage of David, who would save them and deliver them from captivity. So Peter gives the answer that he learned when he was being educated in the Jewish system. By the way, the way Jewish education worked is every year, little guys, little young ladies would go to school, they would be trained, and every year they would roll a few off into professions. And the smartest of the smart, the brightest of the bright, would make it all the way through school and become rabbis. But the folks who got kind of pushed out early into the job market became, well, fishermen, among other things. 
right? So Peter was not considered the brightest of the bright or the best of the best or anything else. But he answers with the, with the answer that he's been brought up in and, and the faith he's been brought up. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. The trick here is, or the, the, the courageous thing here, is that Peter is making that assertion and by do, doing so is breaking Jewish law. In that day, you could not say that an individual was the Messiah. Only the high priest could do that. A guy like Peter, who's sort of at the bottom rung of education and opportunity and in the job market, well, you could be stoned to death for saying that. So the minute Peter makes that profession of faith, he's willing to stand up and risk his life to affirm Jesus as the Messiah. And he also calls Jesus the Son of the living God. And that's a really important phrase in Matthew. If you're kind of familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, you know, you know that phrase shows up every now and then. It shows up in the temptation story. And you know who says it? Who calls Jesus that? Satan. It shows up in the story of Legion. And you know who calls Jesus the Son of the living God? The demons. It shows up here, and it's going to show up again near the end of the Gospel of Matthew when a Roman centurion sees Jesus crucified and says, truly, this is the Son of the living God. This is important stuff. Jesus is saying, not only are you the promised anointed king, but you're also God. You're also God. Remember that identity thing we talked about? For Peter, where you came from, who your people were, identified who you are. And to say that Jesus is the Son of God is to say Jesus is God. It's one of the most powerful professions, maybe the most important we'll ever hear. Jesus answers him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That was his given name. Simon was his given name, son of a man named Jonah or John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now that's a really important phrase for us Methodists. Because we believe, it's a really important part of Methodist doctrine, we believe we're not powerful enough, strong enough, or able to save ourselves. That ultimately we are dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit to draw us to Christ. And that's exactly what's being said in the Scripture. We're not strong enough to save ourselves. Jesus is saying to Peter, but God is, loves you so much, he is relentless, as we learned at camp. He never gives up on you. And it's God who's brought this love, this revelation, this profession to you, Peter. And he says, and I tell you, Peter, you are Peter Petros, the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, there's a debate about whether uh, Peter's being called the rock. He is the rock himself and that leads to the understanding of the papacy, etc. Or, on the more Protestant side, that Jesus is saying Peter's profession of faith is the rock. And it may be both. Here is someone who's willing to stand up and openly and publicly proclaim Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. Every time we join the church, every time someone is baptized and becomes a Christian for the first time, we do something similar because this is how it all started. And Jesus says, upon this ecclesia, the church, the understanding begins here, upon this rock, 
the church will be built. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And they were all sitting right there, looking just kind of over about as far as the back of the room from me at a big cave that they thought were the gates of hell. And he's saying, you know, they brought our ancestors here and they threw them off these cliffs. They have all these idols to gods. But if you believe in me, none of that matters. And none of that can defeat you. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and earth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Everything is given here. Everything is made whole and right. In this profession as Jesus, as Messiah and Son of God. Now, the young people at camp learned a really important lesson about Peter. Some of them knew it already. Peter fails miserably from this point on, right? I mean, it's worse than throwing a hot dog at your mother, right? Isn't it? I want you to say that it is. Yes, right? I mean, here's Peter. He has this incredible high moment, like when you're at camp and you're there and the worship is awesome and you're feeling so close to God. And then he walks out of the tabernacle, basically, and his life just falls apart. Just everything goes bad for him. And pretty soon he's in a courtyard somewhere as they're dragging Jesus down into the pit that's below the high priest's house to be tortured and beaten and eventually led to the cross. And Peter's standing out in the courtyard going, I don't know him. Don't ask me, I don't know who that guy is. That's how bad he falls. The young people learned that after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Christ doesn't give up on Peter. Eventually, Peter is restored. They learned three times that they learned that, that Jesus said certain things to Jesus three times to show that he was restored for the three times he denied Christ. And his failure, and after that failure, he becomes a committed follower of Christ. And I want to put something in front of you. As you think about that story, which our young people spent a whole day learning all about this last week, Every child deserves the same chance that Peter had. Every child deserves the experience I had at Vacation Bible School of knowing that even though I had done something really bad at my house, that my parents still loved me. My dad wrapped his arms around me, and that became my understanding of God because of what happened at VBS. That will only happen. Young people will only know that if we commit ourselves to raising the next generation of Christians and followers of Christ. So here's your action steps. First, if you're already ministering to children and youth, recommit yourself. This is the time to dig in and pour your heart into it even more. Don't back away. Don't say, I'm a little tired of this. This is the time to really deeply commit yourself for the long haul. Because these young people deserve it. These young people need it, and we need to hear from them. Secondly, if you're not doing it, find a way to do it. That's first, too. Find a way to do it if you're not doing it. It might be something as simple as, as coming and helping glue the curriculum together or make cutouts for the kids, but find a place to plug in. Your second action step is to pray for our children, our youth, and their families. 
I wonder if we could, as a church, make the commitment to pray every day till the first day of school for children, youth, and families in this congregation. My hope is that if you would make that commitment to do that, it might just become a habit. But if you'll make that commitment in your heart to go out and do that every day between now and the start of school, let's see where that leads us as a congregation. Sometimes congregations are given a moment by God. We have the right leadership. We have the right volunteers. We have the right ministry at the right time. We have been given an amazing opportunity as a congregation to bless and raise a new generation of Christians. Let's bathe it in prayer. Now, I just want to say one other thing. In my church, when I was growing up at Vacation Bible School, the tradition in that denomination was that on Wednesday night, children would be baptized if they felt like they were ready to be baptized. And so Wednesday night, I went to v, or Wednesday, I went to VBS, and that night I went home and I told my dad I wanted to be baptized. But I didn't want to do it in front of anybody because I was a shy kid. And my dad explained that that's not how it works. Like Peter made his profession of faith in front of all the other disciples, in front of what was then the church, that we do that as a part of a faith community. It was already hours after everybody had left from VBS and everybody was tired and worn out. These were all working class folk. My dad said, if you want to be baptized, we need to go to church. And he called the pastor. And the pastor called a few people. And my mom got me in a little white shirt and a little bow tie, (laughs) seven years old. And two and a half hours after VBS had ended, we went back to church. And I walked in the building, I could hear people singing. My VBS leaders were there. The cookie ladies who handed out the cookies at VBS were there. Lots of people were there. Because the community had come to support me in my faith. And on Wednesday night at 9.30, I was baptized. I just leave you that story to show you what a profound effect we can have when we love young people and give them the opportunity to grow in their faith. You join me now in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.